Let's pray. Father, we would ask you to um, teach us. We're very mindful of the fact that we, uh, we need your spirit to speak to us, to guide us, to challenge us, convict us of sin, encourage us, all of those things. And so we ask you to uh, do that now as we look at your word and as we seek to be guided by you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. You have to excuse me. I put a mint in my mouth before I got up here. <laughs> Didn't mean to do that. I did it without thinking. And so there, I took care of it. Uh, we've been actually looking at four habits that we need to eliminate from our lives in order to make space for God and uh, in order to experience God's presence more fully. And so in weeks past, we already talked about hurry. Uh, we talked about the importance of putting rhythms in place that... Uh, uh, imitate Jesus, and we talked about Sabbath and things of that nature and the importance of Sabbath. And then last week, we talked about hiding. It's the idea of hiding behind pretense, things that we pretend to be better than we are, actually are, and, and they need to be honest with each other and to do that in small groups together and things of that nature. That was last Sunday. Today, we're going to talk about something. Uh, we're going to talk about complaining. Uh, now, there are basically two ways to quit complaining, two approaches to this. One is to change your external world so that there are no circumstances to complain about. Uh, that means that if you uh, have been complaining uh, about not being married, well, you better go get married. Uh, or if you've been complaining about being married, well, you better get unmarried or figure out how to improve that marriage that you're in. If you've been complaining about your job, then you have to get a new job or a new boss, maybe a boss who will say, when would you like to work and just how much would you like to be paid and that kind of thing. If traffic jams bother you, you're going to have to figure out roads to drive on where there are never any traffic jams. If lines at the store bother you like they do me, you have to find out what stores you can go to and not find yourself in a line. And you're just going to have to make sure that all your dates are cute and all your grades are A's and all your relatives are in therapy. And that's one way <laughs> to try and quit complaining. You change your external world, right? But it doesn't work, of course, because there is just too much stuff in our lives that we literally have no control over. That way doesn't work. The other way to quit complaining is to change your internal world. What goes on in here, in your heart? This happened for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church of Philippi, makes this statement. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in one. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, this thing of contentment, this thing of stopping complaining. And here's the thing. We live in this world where pain and difficult things happen to us all the time. And uh, we don't want to be stuffers or pretenders or phonies about our lives. We don't want to deny the difficulties, pretend that they're not happening. We really want to, to change internally so that we can quit this thing of complaining. Uh, I had an Old Testament professor in seminary. His name is Tremper Longman. He's written a number of books, really good books. And he talks about two key words in the Bible. They both start with the letter G in English, these two words. And they're both things that people do in the Bible when bad things or difficult things or trials come their way. One of them is uh, groan, the word groan. Uh, we're told in Exodus 2 that the Israelites groaned in their slavery. 
and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God hears their groaning and he responds to this groaning. And God, through Moses, speaks back into the lives of the Israelites. He says, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant, he says, with them. This practice of groaning is important in the Bible. It actually got included in Israel's sacred literature. In the Psalms, for example, we read this, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long I am worn out from my groaning, you see. The psalmist is actually experiencing groaning fatigue. He's been groaning so long. Interestingly, groaning is actually commanded in the Bible. Uh, in the book of Lamentations, a book that's never read at weddings, uh, <laughs> the writer of Lamentations says this. He says, arise, and he says, cry out. That word is groaning, okay? Arise, cry out, groan in the night. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Look, Lord, and consider, whom have you ever treated like this? It's an interesting question to ask God. But that's groaning. People do, do that uh, in the Bible and in real life, and it's actually commanded that when we're in places of trouble uh, of that nature, that we groan to God. Then there's another word that starts with the letter G uh, in the English in the Bible, and that word is grumbling. And uh, we see this too in the history of Israel, Exodus 15. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? And Moses later reminds them of this part of their history in Deuteronomy 1. He says, you grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. This word also makes it into Israel's liturgy. It appears in the book of Psalms, Psalm 106. They grumbled in their tents. Hold on to that, that location for, because we'll come back to that. They grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord. You notice what grumbling here is, is paired with uh, in this Hebrew literature. Grumbling in their tents did not obey the Lord. These things are paired up. Interestingly, grumbling is actually forbidden in the Bible. The Apostle Paul, in writing again to the church at Philippi, uh, he said this. He said, do everything without complaining. That's the same word, same identical concept of grumbling. Do everything without grumbling or complaining or arguing. Just curious, anybody here grumble? So maybe what we're talking about this morning has some relevance to you. Uh, we tend to think grumbling is okay. At its worst, we think it's maybe a trivial problem, not a big problem, but actually it's a very serious sin. Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, and he says, we ought to avoid the sins that Israel committed in their wanderings in the wilderness, and he lists some of the sins that they committed. Idolatry, sexual immorality is mentioned, testing God is mentioned, and then he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Gulp. Wow. You have these, these two words, groaning and grumbling. Groaning is actually encouraged in the Bible. Grumbling is forbidden. So what's the difference between them? Glad you asked. Otherwise, I have nothing to say. But groaning, groaning is something that I do to God or with God, you see. Grumbling is something I say about God. 
Groaning I do to God's face. Grumbling I do behind God's back, so to speak. The place where Israel would groan is on their knees in prayer, in liturgy, in conversation with God. Such an interesting little phrase. The place where they would grumble was in their tents. Remember that phrase? In hiding or in isolation, they grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord. Where they were free to exaggerate or ignore the facts, right, or distort the truth. Grumbling is always very destructive. One of the things that we talk about as a staff here at Deer Creek all the time is when there's a problem, and boy, you can imagine there's lots of those with this staff, we want to talk to each other and not about each other, right? That's so very important because almost always when you are talking about someone to someone else, you're probably grumbling. This is what Israel did, and it was very destructive. Way back in Israel's history, God delivers them from slavery. You you know this story. He literally parts the Red Sea. He sends the 10 plagues on Egypt. He destroys the Pharaoh's army. They're so grateful. They've been delivered, and they sang the first known hymn there in Exodus 15. And then they're on their way to the promised land, marching through the wilderness. And you would think they would be grateful for the rest of their lives. But not so much couple of days into the wilderness and they can't find water. And in Exodus 15, we read that, that the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? You know, and God very graciously and miraculously supplies them with fresh water, sweet water, it's called. And now they have freedom, their freedom, and they also have water to drink. And we think, wow, they're going to be happy now, right? Grateful forever. Not so much. Exodus 16, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Amazingly, God hears their grumbling. That was grumbling. And God is gracious. God miraculously provides them with bread from heaven. And you, you know about this. You've heard about the manna, right? Which manna means what? What is it? Yeah, that's literally what it means. It tasted apparently like a cracker with honey, something along those lines. So it was pretty good stuff. And now, surely, they're going to be grateful forever. God has given them freedom. He's given them water. He's given them a honey bread all miraculously. No more grumbling. Not so much. Numbers 11, soon the people began to complain, that's the same word, grumble, uh, about their hardship, and the Lord heard everything they said, and then the Lord's anger blazed against them. They got tired of manna, you see, and traveling in the wilderness and the hardships involved, and it says, then the foreign rabble, you understand, there were people that came with the Israelites up out of Egypt and traveled with them. They weren't native Israelites or or Jews um, in terms of their birth, but they had decided, wow, this is a powerful God. I'm going with these guys. And so there was foreigners who went with them in this travel and says, then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain or grumble. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt, and we had all the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic we wanted, but now our appetites are gone, and all we ever see is this manna. And here we start to see part of what's so destructive about grumbling and why God takes it very seriously. 
we begin to see how it destroys the joy that one can experience in one's life and how incredibly contagious grumbling is. Here, grumbling starts with the foreign rabble, but it doesn't stay there. Soon the Israelites are grumbling right along with them, and uh, grumbling is just that way. It's incredibly contagious, and it's also very, very toxic. It can destroy a family. It can destroy an office. It can certainly destroy a church. I was talking with an elder this week from a different church, and he is a really good guy. He's a high-functioning individual. He runs a company, but he, he said he's an elder in his church, but he said the sheer level of grumbling that was coming his way back in his church because of some changes that they were making uh, there in their church were causing him to rethink even wanting to be an elder, he said. It was just discouraging. Grumbling is destructive because it's incredibly toxic. Incredibly toxic and contagious. Grumbling also distorts our perspective. There's a, that's another aspect of grumbling. Uh, what they're grumbling about in Numbers 11 is, is the menu. Uh, why can't we have meat is what they're grumbling about. And they say, remember in Egypt how we had fish for free? Friends, they didn't have fish for free in Egypt. Anybody remember what they were doing in Egypt? What was their occupation? Yeah, they were, they were slaves. They were making bricks, for crying out loud. Uh, but, but when they are grumbling, their perspective gets very distorted. Man, we had it good back there, is what they think. No, you didn't. You were slaves. You were crying out to God for deliverance. There were no fish for free there were no cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic being eaten under the yum-yum tree. Get real. But you see, when I am grumbling, it causes me to forget. It, it causes me to ignore and to dismiss all of the good things God does for me and to exaggerate whatever is difficult in my life, and I lose true perspective. Grumbling does that to us. It clouds our vision. Israel should not have been grumbling. They could have or should have been groaning. Groaning is something I do in the presence of God. Groaning is God-centered. It comes on people who are aware of a much broader context, you see. When people groan, for one thing, they're very aware of their own sin. That in their groaning, their, their own sin is wrapped up in this. This is why very often in the Bible, in the Psalms of lament or the Psalms of complaint, uh, which are groaning Psalms, they very often include a confession of sin, very often. Because awareness of and confession of my sin is very much a part of the, the process of pouring out my, my frustration, my anger, my confusion to God. It's part of the process of groaning. Groaning is God-centered. Grumbling is self-centered. Grumbling is all about me and what I want. How come I don't have the fish I want? How come I don't have the meat I want? How come I don't have the pleasure or the success that I want or I deserve? It's all about me. It's always destructive to the soul as well. And it's always contagious. It started with the foreign rabble. Then it spread to the people of Israel and then it even began to affect their leader, Moses. We read that Moses heard all the families standing in the doorways of their tents whining. And the Lord became extremely angry. And Moses was also very aggravated. And Moses said to the Lord, why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Have mercy on me. What did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? 
Did I give birth to them? Did I bring them into the world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them to be the land, uh, to the land that you swore to give their ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They keep whining to me. Give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and spare me this minute this misery that's not the most spiritual sounding uh, you know <laughs> passage in scripture on the surface that sounds like some pretty serious grumbling God you are doing a lousy job why did you get me into this Moses is pretty far off base but he does do one thing right here he complains to God not about God he goes to God's face, not behind God's back. So really, this is more groaning than grumbling. And I have to tell you, in thinking about this and wrestling with this subject uh, this week, one of the convictions I came to is I actually need to do more groaning with God. Not grumbling, groaning. You know, Moses' honesty with God here is a little bit shocking. The edginess of his language with, uh, language with God, I think, indicates Moses had a a very real, very deep relationship with God. If you ever find your prayers feeling kind of boring or dull or lifeless or just rote, right? Maybe it's because there's not enough reality in them. You're not talking to God about what's really actually going on in here. Maybe bringing our real frustrations, our real angers, our real hurts or disappointments or confusion would start a real conversation with God, kind of like what Moses is having with God here. Maybe groaning to God is something God can work with. Maybe groaning is even a mechanism for change. Grumbling, on the other hand, is, is really just talking behind God's back. God wants grumbling to stop. Groaning, he accepts. Grumbling, he abhors, even punishes. God actually invites us to come to him with our confusion our frustration, our hurt, our anger, our bitterness, our, our pessimism, our ingratitude, bring it all to him. He doesn't tell us to suppress these things. He doesn't tell us, you know what, shut up and act happier. He doesn't tell us that. That's not God's will for our life. God's will is that we actually practice coming to him with everything, good, bad, gratitude, or groaning. Pour out our hearts to him. Sit with our issues and our difficulties with him. And in that process, actually be transformed. It's that invitation of coming boldly to the throne of grace talked about in Hebrews 4. He invites this. He invites us. So much so that I learned to experience this day, this moment, this place, and whatever happens to be in it, even the hard stuff, as a gift from God. And if not a gift, okay, then a trial that God will get me through. Okay, God, I'm thankful that you are with me in this trial, in this mess. Please teach me. Please grow me up. And, of course, that would take some real transformation for us to have attitudes and hearts that want to talk to God that way. But wouldn't it be a wonderful thing, a really wonderful thing, if the level of our gratitude achieved the level of our blessing? Because you know what? We are a very, very blessed people. We're a very blessed church. We really are. 
Um, wouldn't it be a cool thing if we were to become a truly, truly grateful people? One of the ways this, uh, for this to happen, if you want to be a more grateful person, one of the things that you can do is you can practice the expression of gratitude, whether you feel grateful or not. This is very powerful. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I did a funeral for a man who was part of our church family here at Deer Creek. His name was Michael Tarbox. His wife's name is Wendy. Michael had developed a brain tumor, and uh, he had battled that aggressively for two years before actually losing that battle and going to be with the Lord. But when Michael first received news of this brain tumor, he, he was told this is aggressive, um, you know, short of, you know, some pretty radical treatments being effective, short of something miraculous happening, this was, this was going to kill Michael. And when Michael first received that news, Michael wrote in his journal, and I was, I was shown Michael's journal, and uh, he wrote in the third person. It was kind of interesting, but this is what Michael wrote. He said, Michael is keenly aware of his physical situation. In other words, no sugarcoating. I'm going to die. If something miraculous doesn't happen, I'm going to die. No sugarcoating. And then he said, Michael is embracing what Jesus has done in his life and who Jesus is. So that's his focus, you see. He's holding on to that. Then he says, Michael is looking forward to living his life fully and honestly and godly and building deep, meaningful relationships with his son and daughter, Paul and Aaron. Michael later took those goals and he summarized them in a way, put them on a piece of paper, and he carried this piece of paper in his wallet, and I was given the privilege of seeing that as well. And, and th these were his goals that he carried around with him. Number one was honoring God. Number two was live responsibly, ownership. Own the good, the bad, the ugly, live responsibly. And number three was embrace every day, he said, without worry. Can you imagine battling with it? Without worry, with gratitude and anticipation. <laughs> I remember when I saw that, I thought, wow, I want to live that way too. That's no matter what. And from where I stand, I mean, I've got so much stuff to be thankful for, so much stuff. But from where Michael stood, he felt the same way. He had so much to be thankful for. You know, one way we do that is we just, we just express gratitude even in the face of difficulty. Michael did that over and over. One of the first verses I ever memorized was the old King James version of Psalm 100. If you know that psalm, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, it says. Anybody can do that. You know, a joyful noise is not very specific. Uh, part of what's interesting is it doesn't say, have a joyful feeling unto God. It does not say that. It says, make a joyful noise. And I think that's because I can always make a joyful noise. I can't always make myself have a joyful feeling. And here's the deal. And psychologists know this. They would affirm this truth. Psychologists will tell you it's easier to act your way into a feeling than to feel your way into an action. Uh, I'm told to love my enemy. Well, I, I, there are, are steps I can take, actions I can, I can take that will enable me to love my enemy, whether I feel like loving them or not, right? The other way around just, just doesn't work. If I'm going to wait to love them until I feel like loving them, I'm never going to love them, you see. I love how Eugene Peterson translates Psalm 100 in the Message Bible. You know, this is a, a very loose paraphrase of Scripture. 
Uh, he translates it this way, Psalm 100, verse 1. He says, on your feet now, applaud God. <laughs> in our day, that's a joyful noise. I mean, you know, we applaud we, in the ball game. Somebody scores a touchdown, gets a pigskin across the goal line. It's, oh, yeah, you know, or, or hits a ball out of a stadium, what have you. And then he says, bring a gift of laughter when you come to church, when you gather with others. Bring a gift of laughter. Sing yourselves into his presence. One of the reasons we sing is not because we like hearing your voices. <laughs> but he does. He does. He loves hearing. That's why when you stand there silently, you know, don't do that. Join in. There are some songs that we sing that are in a key that I can't sing. So let's never do that again, Dustin. No, no. So what I will do is I will just, I'll just say it. If I can't sing it, I'll say it. It's good for me to say it. But anyway, you know, th this is why we sing. He says, sing yourselves into his presence. And that's such a, just a great thing that the church does when it gathers. It expresses the heart. And then he says this, verse four, he says, enter the presence of God with the password. Thank you. Isn't that great? I love that. He's talking about a password for entering into God's presence. Anybody here have a lot of passwords? You have a lot of passwords? Yeah. Anybody ever grumble about your passwords? Yeah. Oh, man, me too. I have a file with all these different passwords in them that keeps my passwords. I have actually forgotten the password to that file before. <laughs> and that's a problem, let me tell you. Well, the password for going into God's presence is simply thank you, God. Thank you. I was thinking how cool it would be to be a part of a group that is just so genuinely fired up about God's goodness and God's greatness. They just want to applaud God. I mean, think about it. There's so much to be thankful for. Now, I know that wouldn't happen here. We're a Presbyterian church. We keep our hands where they belong, you know. But when I woke up this morning, it was not a coincidence that I woke up. It was God's gift to me. Another day, life and breath. I had a table to sit at. I had food to eat. I had clean clothes to put on. A lot of people don't in the world today. Our planet is incredibly beautiful. When I woke up this morning, there was a huge deer, uh, a buck with a big old racket sitting right in my backyard. I watched him while I ate a bowl of cereal. Absolutely incredible. Not only that, we live in Colorado for crying out loud. That's it's one of the best parts of the planet that we live on, right? Sunrises, sunsets, mountains, birds. I have a family who loves me. I have a church family who loves me and I love. And there's the Bible, man. I get to learn, actually learn, read about the stories of God interacting with people. And I get to know God through that. And then there's the Holy Spirit. He's in my life. I don't have to be alone. I have spiritual gifts that I can use to make a difference in the world. And then best of all, best of all, God gave me Jesus the master of life, whose teaching still changes the world and whose life is a matchless piece of goodness and beauty. And Jesus died on the cross. It just keeps getting better. And I have the forgiveness of my sins. Not one of my sins are counted against me. And then Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. I have resurrection power at work in my life and in my body and in my ministry right now. And then I have heaven to look forward to. Goodness gracious, this was Michael. Looking forward to heaven. I don't have to worry about dying because I am going to be with God forever. Wouldn't it be cool someday to be with a group of people who are so excited about some of these things that when the Bible says, on your feet, applaud God now, they actually did it. <laughs> yeah. Amen. I was wondering if you'd get the hint. 
See, that's gratitude. I mean, that's, that's always a password into the very presence of God. And that tool is always available to us, always. Wherever we are, whatever's going on in our lives at any given moment, every day, we live in a culture, you know, that encourages us to grumble. Why? Because it encourages us to care really only about ourselves. I mean, me, I'm what matters here. My feelings are what matter, not your feelings. You know, my joy, my future, that's, that's all that matters. That's what our world encourages us to, to believe. So whenever anything is troubling me, therefore, I have a right to grumble. But you won't find God in grumbling. You really won't. You will find him. You will find him in gratitude. Now, before we quit, I I need to say uh, one more word about groaning. Especially to those who are hurting. And that's a fair number Uh, in any given church. There's always a fair number of people that are in hurting places. And if that's not you today, don't worry, it will be. There's an amazing passage in the Bible about groaning. Uh, The message of the Bible is not, don't worry, be happy. (laughs) That is not biblical. The Bible recognizes that there is plenty of things in life to groan about. The apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and he said this in Romans 8. He said, for the creation was subjected to frustration. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Paul is saying that the planet that we live on, this this earth that we love, is messed up. It is polluted. It is torn with violence. It is subjected to frustration. It's been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Groaning is what you do when you hurt so much, you just can't even find words to express it. Creation groans. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Things die. Things get sick. There's pain. There's suffering. It's all wrong. A happy attitude cannot paper over that, and it's not supposed to. We're not supposed to pretend. Paul goes on to say that not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we've been given the Spirit. If you follow Jesus, you've been given the Spirit. We too, he says, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So you see, we groan too. Those of us who know and love Jesus, who have been given the Spirit of God, we're not exempt from groaning. And so while it's true, our lives should be full of gratitude, there's lots to be grateful for. We're we're just lavishly grateful to God, where we stand on our feet and applaud God. It is also true in this place, this side of heaven, that we groan together. Groaning is welcome and honest and real. So many people get confused about this in the church, the broader church. They think if something bad happens or they're sad or they've done something wrong or maybe God has done something wrong, like there's some kind of bargain, you know, that we have with God where as long as we follow Jesus, as long as we obey him, everything will be okay or should be. Not so much, friends. Not since the fall. Not since sin entered the picture. Go read the book of Job. Wrestle with that. Paul says very honestly, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly 
And not just that, this is the great mystery. This, this is amazing. This gets actually to the very heart of our God. Paul says this, he says, in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. So here's the spirit of God who helps us in our weaknesses, not by making things okay, making bad things go away, not even by making us tough. For we do not know what we ought to pray for, he says. We don't have the words, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. So creation groans, people groan, Christians groan, but even God, the spirit, groans. Do you understand that? Our God, the holy, matchless, wondrous, powerful, joyful creator of all that is, is a groaning God. Only the God of the Bible is a groaning God. The most mysterious words that Jesus ever spoke were on the cross when he was in anguish, physical anguish, spiritual anguish. Jesus groaned a cry that has come to be known as the cry of dereliction. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see that in that statement in Jesus, God groans with you, with me? So that one day you can reign in love and power and joy with him. That's our God, friends. A God who, while he labors to fix all the brokenness, he's coming back someday. It's all going to get fixed. But until that day, he groans with us. And that's why we can we stand up and we can applaud our God. I mean, there is no other God like that. He is with us always in everything. He gives us through his son, Jesus, and the spirit of Jesus, the power to live a life of joy, the power to live a life of gratitude, even when we find ourselves needing to groan. So I would just say, here's the big point. Let's become a people that radiate gratitude and practice groaning, pouring out our hearts to God over suffering, over evil, over heartaches, over brokenness, over sin in the world and sin in us. But at the same time, giving God praise and honor and thanks for all of his good gifts to us day in, day out. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Maybe you're here and you're just aware of many, many things that uh, you take for granted or even become complacent about. But when you think about it, you realize you should be grateful for them. Well, now is your time to thank God for them. Our Father loves to be thanked. That's the password. Loves it just like a, an earthly father loves being thanked by a child. Thank you, God. Thank you for all you've given us. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for our lives. Thank you for our friends. Thank you for our families. Thank you for what we have. Or if you're here and your heart is in pain, if you're here, there's something broken deep down in your soul, then you can groan right now. 
Name it as best you can. God, my heart is broken. God, I'm afraid. God, I'm alone. And then you know as you do that that the Spirit of God is actually interceding with and for you with groanings too deep for words. God knows and God cares all about you. God, hear our prayers. We offer them to you in Jesus' name. Amen.